This is wow. This is Jonathan Mickles with the Strategic Multifamily Investing Podcast, and I have with me Mr. Stephen Rinaldi, who's an attorney, a syndication attorney, and so we're going to learn a lot more about how to put these things together. Thank you so much, Stephen, for uh, joining us. Great. Thank you very much for having me on this Friday afternoon, Jonathan. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do exactly. Okay. I have had my own law firm now for the past 15 years. I've been practicing law a total of 33 years. I've been handling private offerings of securities 30 years. And my offerings have been concentrated in all industries from technology to financial technology to trying to put together an offering for a COVID vaccine passport to real estate syndications. So you've been all over the board. (laughs) When you're you're practicing in the securities area, the need is basically the capital raise and structuring it within the laws and regulations. Got it. So someone raising money for a multifamily apartment building, the terms may be different, but the relevant laws and regulations are the same. So when you talk about the laws and regulations, are you talking about Reg D laws or? Yeah, Reg D is a regulation, yes. Uh, The general law is the Securities Act of 33, and it basically says all securities offerings are deemed to be public offerings unless they are private offerings. And for the better part of 49 years, we wondered in a fog because the, the statute, the 33 Act, never really adequately defined what a private offering was. The best guidance we got was from the Supreme Court in 46 in the Ralston Purina case that said it was a transaction not intended to the public. You kept it to few people, you didn't advertise, and you furnished information about the offering. Well, it was very vague and nebulous until regulate until the SEC came out with Regulation D in 1982. Okay, so 82, we got the clarity that we needed. We finally, after 49 years. Wow. So then, what did what does Regulation D uh, say? I, I'm familiar with I think two sections, but you know. What, what, what did it, what kind of clarity did it give us? In- okay, well, it gave us clarity in three ways as it's most recently been updated. It said that an offering is less than 5 million, okay, and regulated by state laws and regulations, then it is not a public offering. The SEC does not, that's rule 504. The SEC does not go much into 504. It leaves that completely up to the states. Now, the reason why you don't see a heck of a lot of 504 offerings is each state can be different. How each state under its own blue sky laws and regulations sometimes defines a private offering of securities differently. To make life easy on attorneys and clients, the most frequently used parts of Regulation D are 506B and 506C. And 506B exempts offerings from public regi- from having to go through the public registration process if they go to 35 or fewer unaccredited investors plus an unlimited number of accredited investors, you can raise an unlimited dollar amount, but you've got to have a prior relationship with the investors, be okay. it through ARIA, be it through other business networking organizations, be it through you know them, their friends and family, you've been introduced by an investment advisor and you've then talked to the person for a while, 
the SEC declines to define exactly what a prior relationship is. Got it. They want to look at it on a case-by-case basis. But in those instances that I cited, you'd be fine. Understood. So then if I've met him at a RIA, I met him at a conference, uh, we talk. Some people use a three touches rule. Where yeah, I, that, that helps. Yes, that helps. OK, so so if I met them at a conference, which often happens, right, there's the networking thing and we do the 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 exchange of business cards, how should I follow up with them, you know, thereafter to meet? Call the them, and call them, uh, email them, set up a Zoom call and have it recorded like, like this is and just ask them what their goals are, what their investment expectations are. We should record see, if, see if they're a good fit. That's that's really good. Record the, the Zoom call. Record it. Why record the Zoom call? Why not just, just ask a conversation? Just in case, let's say you're doing two or three Zoom calls with the person, you can show a pattern of two or three calls. You can show a pattern of, hey, I tried to feel out this person's investment objectives. You know, some people don't want pre-1978 properties because they may have lead. Got it. I asked them, would you be okay if we did a pre-70, you know, we purchased a pre-78 property? Some people will say, They'll ask a bunch more questions and then say fine or not fine. Others will say no way, stop right there. Okay. Some people might be okay with a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan. Others will be like, why didn't you go to a private lender? Why didn't you go to a bank? So, is there a questionnaire that you think that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that helps. You want to I, I judge what the person wants out of an investment return what the person would like out of an exit strategy, uh, how much of their cash is tied up in private offerings, because you don't want too much, you want liquidity. Why real estate? What background do they have in real estate? Do they own properties on their own and just, hey, I want to participate in a syndication as another stream of income. I don't have the time to manage 20 properties. I like to manage three or four and then have a few syndications. Feel out what their expectations are. And the more their expectations meet your expectations of an ideal investor, the better you are. So, so question you mentioned before, you know, how much is tied up in private equity? And you or say pro- or private or, or just privately private held stuff and private private securities. And you said you don't want too much or everything. If you right. want you want, you want some liquidity. If it's 100 percent private, the person can't cash out if there's an emergency. Or there are severe limits on the person's ability to cash out. So is there a percentage in terms of private? No, no set percentage, but just be careful. Okay. If they, the guy says, I like 100% private, unless they're a multi-billionaire and can, and have a trust fund they can live off of. Okay. So you don't want them to be 100% in private, private. Well, you want them to say, well, I've got some stocks, I've got some of my own properties and. Got it. So, so it should be less than 100%. Right. <laughs> yeah. Not in the 90s, preferably either. Got it. Got it. So that they, because they may need to have some liquidity because right. things may be tied up um, or there may be a capital call, say. Exactly. Uh, yes. Which could happen. And for, for those who are listening, what is a capital call? Uh, essentially, sometimes, you know, these offerings that you're in with uh, an apartment building, et cetera. Um, they may at some point in time need additional money to do say CapEx or to operate the property. And in the way that that happens is 
that the the GP or the general partnership goes back to the LP, the limited partnership, and or just to the entire group and says, hey, we need to raise additional equity um, in order to take care of these issues. And so that's a call to capital call. Right. That, right. Capital calls are dealt with by attorneys on three different levels. Okay. Everybody has their own philosophy. My philosophy is the squeeze down philosophy. And what that means is the managing member now in the LLC format or the old general partner makes a call. Got it. Some people contribute and some do not. In the squeeze down method, those who contribute get more membership units and a greater share of the profits and losses, but the non-contributors stay in. That's theory one. That's the one I follow in writing the operating agreements and in writing my prospectuses. So, so what you're saying though, there is, there may be some people um, that's, that, that are in this partnership that may not have additional revenue in mm -hmm. order to. Um, so the squeeze down method, um, there may be some people who are in the partnership who may not have say additional resources in order to contribute. But there may be others who have that liquidity that we're talking about that's below right. 90% who may say, hey, I'll contribute. But as they contribute, then that means that to the dollar amount that they contribute, they have a higher percentage of yes. the actual. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's theory number two is the old hard nose rule. You don't contribute, you're shut out, you lose everything. You're no longer a member. I think that's very harsh and drastic. Okay. And if I ever saw that on the other end, I don't think I'd invest in it. That's just my opinion. Gotcha. And I'm an attorney. I just write the documents. I don't make recommendations. But gosh, if I saw the old hard news rule, I'd run. Got it. And this theory three, okay. all capital contributions will be in the form of a loan so that everybody's amount of profit stays the same. You know, Got the additional cap just come in the form of loan. Now you can see where the big problem with this is headed. Now you've syndication, got you got a bank loan and one of those covenants is no further debt. So yeah. that's going to lead, you know, if you go the third route, the loan route, you are going to be banging head, your head right into a brick wall. The so there is there a due on sale clause that kind of gets triggered like in residential or something like that? Yeah. They, yeah. Bank, you could <laughs> loan bank loan documentation is harsh yeah. and not often negotiable, especially on those kind of covenants. The bank, so, wants, the bank wants to be the first and only lender. So for others that are out there, um, and this may happen, well, I, <laughs> I, I, so in the, real, in, the, in the residential real estate side of things, when, you know, some people were playing, you know, fast and loose, they would ask, you know, if you're in a, uh, a challenging or distressed situation, you know, and you needed to sell your home fast, they wouldn't obviously give you the full value of the home because they needed to discount it. They would say, hey, quick claim deed or sign yeah. over your home to me. And then people would do that. But if the mortgage company, if there was still a mortgage in the property and the mortgage company found out about it. Do on sale, there, exactly. There's a well, in this case, it's not, it's not sort of do on sale. It's you have a covenant saying no additional debt. Your debt ratio cannot exceed X. Well, if you're getting loans from people and you, as the form of a capital contribution, that's debt. Yeah. That's going to leave you head on, fighting that covenant head on. You can't do that. Got it. 
So I've usually gone the squeeze down method. And yeah. the way to get around the trouble there is in the prospectus, you just disclose, hey, the roof was repaired six years ago. Now, most roofs have to be done every 15 years. So that's an automatic that lets you know if this thing's still around in nine years, we may need a $50,000 capital call to do that roof. Right. Or in the prospectus, the last time the parking lot was done was 2008. Maybe needing 15,000 to call that paving company. Right. What a lot of my clients tend to do is they tend to raise from investors and borrow from the bank in an amount greater than the purchase price. Oh, raise. They raise, they raise not just for the acquisition, but for repairs as well. So let's, let's, let's talk about that. So this is, this is really, really good. Um, and there was one other question that you raised and I'm going to put it down here, but so what I've, what I've learned some, what some people do is they take the average rent for, for each of the units, say if there's a hundred unit building and the average rent is $800, then for each unit, right, they would take 800 times a hundred. And then that's what they're raising as potentially a CapEx budget um, to, or, or, or a reserve of some sort. Uh, mm -hmm. just in case something else happens. And that may be above and beyond the CapEx, meaning the work that they know that needs to happen day yes. one. Or, and, and then that would be their cushion, if you will, to move forward. Is that what you're, you're kind of I'm saying? I'm seeing that. In fact, every single prospectus I've written has a working capital slash reserves line in the use of the proceeds in which that's buried in there. And obviously the reasoning for that is you can use that so it makes it less likely you have to go to the initial cap, the additional capital call. Got it. And oftentimes that's above the line. And when I say above the line, because there are monthly expenses that come generally after that, which are property management and, and accounting, general admin, you know, et cetera. And then some people also put in there some additional fees uh, for, say, um, uh, oh gosh. I'm miss, <laughs> missing the two line items right now. But those things are separate from that particular operating reserve that's out yes. there. So it helps you to make sure that you're conservative enough in order to make these deals, you know, uh, make it make it useful. So then my next question to you, because I know that there are some that are in our community now that are saying, hey, if you're going to be that conservative, then you're probably not going to get the deal because a lot of deals are actually trading a lot higher, right, than you know, what some people think, you know, it probably should, which compresses the cap rate, et cetera. And so some people think that they're artificially compressed and that we possibly could be heading towards a correction at some point in time. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm, as I said, I'm the attorney who writes the, dis the disclosure documents. I mean, you know, that's kind of an, more of an investment banker's projection okay. on whether or not we're heading for a correction. I do think multifamily is stronger than most other areas of real estate, per, than other areas of commercial real estate personally. Got it. Because people are less likely, people are far more likely to pay their rent on their apartment than a restaurant is likely to pay the rent on the shopping center. Got it. Or a retail location is likely to pay rent on the shopping center. So I think from a from a, you know, from a cap ratio perspective, the reserve 
on a shopping center, a part of that isn't going to go to the future parking lot in three years of the roof. It's going to go when Joe's restaurant can't pay the bank loan, the landlord and the franchisor all at the same time. Got it. Where so that's where you're going to see in multifamily housing, the check, you know, the person writes you, the landlord, the check. They're not writing a check to the bank and a check to the landlord and a check to the franchisor. Got it. Got it. So and having to pay tax and having to pay, you know, withhold social security and Medicare on the employees. Got it. So you're you're seeing that even if there is some sort of correction, it probably will be offset because people need a place to live. That's what I think You've I heard. Got to have a place to live. Yep. People are first thing they're going to pay is their rent or their mortgage. The next thing is going to they're going to pay is their car loan. The third thing they're going to pay is their cell phone bill and their home internet bill. Got it. Anything else is where you start getting into the uncertainty. So, so that's, I think, very important for people who are looking to potentially invest in real estate or have been thinking about investing in real estate is to know that that security, that people need to have a place to live, want to have a place to live that's nice, you know, that's decent, um, and, and wanting to pay that mortgage or pay that uh, rent amount is going to be very, very important. So um, I think that that, that's a, that becomes a benefit, an additional benefit for, for owning real estate. I want to ask another question specifically that you mentioned, you know, what kind of experience they've had with real estate as one of the questions that we're asking potential, you know, investors. So there are sometimes, you know, people who come to us who, who may be high, you know, dollar earner, um, who may be doctors, who, you know, engineers, you know, who are making six figures or more. And, you know, they don't have experience in real estate. They have experience maybe in a stock market or they just have, you know, 401ks or mutual funds. They may have heard of a self-directed IRA. How, how do we make sure that they're educated or that they get some level of education? What, what are your talk, thoughts about that? Talk about the property, okay? okay? Talk about this is the acquisition price. This is the mortgage. This is what I'm raising from investors. These are the repairs for reserves. Talk about what's in the prospectus. This is the average, this is the rent for one bedrooms. This is the rental range for two bedrooms. It's the rental range for three bedrooms. These are the, you know, the number of baths in each. When I, when it's vacant, I plan to go in and put in a new kitchen and new flooring and raise the rate. What is the rent on that multifamily property versus the rent on other multifamily properties? The most successful deals I'm seeing are the ones where it's a below average rental. They're going to take advantage of any vacancy they can get their hands on there. When someone goes, they're going to rehab it, renovate it, and hike the rent by 200, 300 a month up to the current market rate. Now, I understand educating them on that on that particular deal, but I can't present a deal to them unless I have a pre-existing right. Substantive right. relationship. So I guess I'm talking about education before real estate. What, what your overall philosophy in pursuing deals? Rather than that, just this is what I'm looking for. I will not buy if the vacancy rate is greater than 10. percent I will not buy in an area where the unemployment rate is greater than you know is is greater than 25 percent over the national average. I will I buy within a, a locations within a couple miles of major employers. 
It's it's rental property. A lot of people have used cars, and to drive a used car five miles to work and five miles home every day, hey, you can go years like that. But if you got to put 50, 60 miles on it because it's farther away, person's going to say, mm, eh, I got to locate closer. Got it. So you look you look for you look for the unemployment rate. You look for major employers. Locations near hospitals tend to be selling very well because hey. You know, sometimes the interns and residents and the nurses work odd hours. And being able to drive a mile home or even walk a half mile, that's a big break rather than having to face a 30-mile drive after the graveyard shift. Got it. So we met because, you know, of a mutual acquaintance, Michael Blanc. And yes. I understand that you actually helped Michael with several of uh, his initial uh, purchases, correct? So with, with that um, being kind of a foundation, one of the things that Michael mentions in, in his education, uh, uh, like others, is exactly kind of what you're saying is that, you know, prior to the substantive, pre-existing substantive relationship, you know, create a sample deal package. And that's you know, pretty much exactly what you're talking about in terms of, you know, education. Would you recommend maybe a drip campaign or a video of some sort walking one through a sample deal package as a way of educating them? Well, if you get too much of the video on the property, it becomes an advertisement. And a 506B offering, you cannot advertise. 506C, you can advertise, however. So, but 506C only goes to accredited investors. Got it. And so I, they, I would just I would just give them deal parameters. This is what I'm looking for. Deal generally. parameters. Okay. So they at least know what your your investment objectives are. This is like if you were a mutual fund. Forget about syndications for a minute. If Got you're it. putting together just a private fund, all funds have deal parameters. We look Got for it. this and not that. We look for this and not that. We look for this type of return and not that. We look to exit on this time and not that. We don't want our leverage ratio to be above this. And that's a that's a pretty quick, um, you know, conversation and or video, if you will, to just because I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, someone can maybe do, you know, a quick loom video on here are our deal parameters as a way of being able to not only say that on the on the call, but then after a call that you're recording the, on Zoom, right, mm -hmm. so that you have documentation that you have a, had a conversation with this person and, and that you do have a relationship. Um, it, do, you, do you find that those who are working um, or building up their, 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 data, their database, if you will, um, are having challenges with people recording the calls? Uh, well, some states you have to consent to it. The consent maybe, I'm not a privacy attorney, so that has, that has to be checked out. Always notify people. You know, obviously, when, when you work with a broker dealer or an investment advisor, that is just in case FINRA or the SEC comes knocking. Got it. So you might. But I mean, you got to you got to get their consent. But say, oh, what you want to say is be honest. Like, I want to make sure that my my parameters for my acquisitions and my deals meet your investment needs. Got it. I want you as part of the group, but not if it's not going to meet your needs. There may be other people out there who I know who do. Got it. Or maybe this deal doesn't work for you. Maybe other another deal that we get well, into that, that will. So in terms of, um, I guess, size of database these days, you know, how, how many, how many people should we have in our, what kind, 
Yeah, how many people should we have in our database? Let me ask that question first. I always advise my clients to what I call oversubscribe. Now, obviously, you have to stay within the 35-person unaccredited limit if you're doing 506B. But remember, some people back out, okay? Okay. 35 unaccredited investors, you cannot take more than 35 unaccredited investors, but a lot of people back out. I'd have a database of at least 150 people accredited and non-accredited. Got it. That way, at least probably 15 or 20 will participate. Now, if you have 15 at $50,000, that's $750,000. In a bank loan of one and a half million, you can pursue a deal of 2.25 million. You know, it's 2 million for the acquisition and 254 pairs. That yeah. will probably get, I've had clients do that and have had a lot of success. Got it. So we need a database size of about 150 people. Yeah, I would do that. Absolutely. Got it. And and that they all have been vetted. We've had recorded conversations. We've gone through some sort of a questionnaire of sorts. Do you happen to have a questionnaire on your side? Uh, I can I can prepare one. You, usually okay. I can prepare one as I bring as I bring in the client and they start syndications. Absolutely. So there is there is this thing about self-verifying, you know, or self-certifying, as I understand, that as you've had your conversations, as you know, or as I have my conversations and we're, you know, getting ready to go and you know, offer PPM agreements. What is what is that about? Where self-certification goes to accreditation status, whether or not somebody's accredited. Who is an accredited investor? Obviously, the bank, broker, dealer, insurance, uh, insurance company, mutual fund, small business development company, uh, corporation or bus business with assets more than five million, uh, trust fund with assets more than five million. But what we see a lot of is the individual side. They have a net worth of, a, of over a million or more, you know, adjusted for inflation, the amount's a little higher, mm -hmm. uh, excluding the house, life insurance, and the car. Mm. Remember okay. to exclude that. Or it's a husband and wife with a salary of over 300000 a year, adjusted for inflation now, and you mm -hmm. have every expectation that's going to continue. Once upon a time when Reg D came out, doctors were the classic accredited investors. Well, with insurance companies ratcheting down their payments, unless you're talking neurosurgeons, anesthesiologists, or other surgeons, heck of a lot of doctors aren't. Oh, really? The average pediatrician earns 144. Two pediatricians would not, husband and wife pediatricians would not be accredited investors, probably. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. So be careful. What you need to do is have them self-certify, either have them provide you with a copy of their tax returns or have them give you a letter from their registered investment advisor verifying the status or you know, bank accounts or brokerage statements so you can see that they are over that amount for accreditation. Do you- Make sure you're accredited self-certify. In my subscription agreement, I have a checklist mm -hmm. of 13 things. And number 13 is, I don't qualify for any of the above. I'm unaccredited. You got to keep your, if you're going the 506B route, you got to keep those number of checks 35 or under. Got it. Do you, do you recommend using some of the, uh, there, there are some companies that are out there now, two popular ones that I know of 
that do verification of uh, accreditation status, do you recommend using those third-party services to if do that? If you wanted to, I think it's pretty easy to do it on your own. Just say, look, ah. we need brokerage statements, we need bank accounts, or we need a letter from your RIA, or we need a letter from your estate planning attorney, or we need a, or let me see your tax returns. I think it's something a person can do on their own. Got it. Got it. I think it's one of the easier things you can do. The SEC did not set it up to be complicated. They set it up to make it easy. So it's easy for people to comply with. I guess with, um, with those sensitive documents, you know, my thing is security, right? Making sure that we're transferring those documents in, right. you know. Well, worst in, comes to worst, you drive to a location, you meet them, have them show it to you there. So they can just pull it right off the table. Got it. So, and that's great if we're, if we're here, but if, if they're literally across the country, then, you know, having some systems, not necessarily. And then at that point you might want to, yeah. So it's, it's encrypted and the hackers can't get into it. At, at that point, you've got to worry about systems. Got it. But in a lot of cases with private offerings, it tends to be friends, family, people, you know, and doing the drive to just check the, check the paperwork out and go without it going into your hands. Got it. Works. That'll work about 80, 90% of the time. Okay, so that works. All right, so um, what are you seeing right now as some of the uh, potential problems that newbies are, are facing as they're getting involved? I think what newbies are facing is they've got to realize you got to be, you know, you've got to, and you got to pay the attorney for the professional services. It's not, just your basic real estate closing. Yeah. You need to form a Delaware LLC. You need to write the operating agreement. You need to write a private placement memorandum. You need to write a subscription agreement. You need to file form D. In every state where there's an investor located plus with the SEC, all that total is gonna cost you between eight and $11,000. You know, 11,000 will be the higher end if you're using a holding company structure. So then let's talk about structuring a little bit. You know, um, there have been a lot of conversation, there's been a lot of conversation recently about doing single purpose, you know, entities, uh, doing funds, uh, doing special types of funds. What are some of the structures that you're seeing right now where people are doing this? So, so I see three different structures. Structure okay. one is the single purpose entity in which form the Delaware LLC, write the operating agreement, write the private placement memorandum, write the subscription agreement, file form D with the SEC and every state where they're investors and qualify the LLC as a foreign LLC in that state in which the property is in. I understand. A lot of newbies are going the single, going the single, the single property entity, which makes sense. It's a, it's a way to get into the market and get an understanding. Okay. Now that's the most common. Structure two is the fund, and that is a different animal. Why is that a different animal? Help me understand. Well, you know, we've talked about two areas of law in this conversation. We talked about the Securities Act of 33 and exemptions right. from registration. Yep. And we talked about state blue sky laws, which is state right. securities laws, and their exemptions from registration. Most mm -hmm. states follow the 506B rule. Okay. If, you, if you go the 506C route, there's usually a state exemption that you can fit into almost always. Got it. It may be five investors in the state. It may be 15, it may be 25, 
but there's always something there. Okay. Almost always. The fund route is tricky, but doable. Because you not only have the Securities Act of 33 to worry about and state securities law, you also have the Investment Company Act of 1940. Okay. Most people do not want to be regulated as a mutual fund. So that's kind of what this is. That oh, having yeah. a fund but, is but there's a big thing everybody needs to know if they go on the fund route. It's called 3C1. All right. What is 3C1 is an exemption. It says if you have 100 or fewer investors, they can be accredited or they can be unaccredited. You do not have to file as a, a registration statement with the SEC as a mutual fund. What okay. does that mean? Okay. The 40 Act together with the 33 Act, you know, you look at Regulation D and then you look at 3C1. And you say, well, Steve, you said 35 or fewer unaccredited. Right. Which means if you go on the fund route, now you can get 64 accredited, plus yourself as the managing member or general partner. Okay. So that's area three. Remember, I said five areas come into play with a fund, not two. So to get around mutual fund registration, everybody goes the 3C1 route to keep it to 100. Real easy. Everybody's been doing it since 1940. Now the trick comes in. Inve the, the Investment Advisor Act of 39 comes into play. Okay. In the Dodd-Frank law of 2010, <laughs> okay. Congress created an exemption that said, if you raise less than 150 million, you don't need to be an investment advisor or use an investment advisor. Okay, so we've got less okay. than 100 people Less than 100 less than people, 150. less than 35 unaccredited, 35 or fewer unaccredited, less than 150 million. Everybody's saying, all right, I can do this. Okay. I can massively do this, right? All right. And South Dakota and New York joined in and said, yeah, we like the 150 million rule. Now comes area number five, the bad news. States regulate investment advisors too. The states okay. did not like Dodd-Frank. They didn't like it at all. So if you are doing the fund route, you have two choices. Either you use a registered investment advisor for your fund, or you find an exemption from state investment advisor law saying you've got to register. What are the most common exemptions? Well, there are some states that say if you do five or fewer funds, you don't have to register. Some say 15, some say six. Some say if you're open to accredited investors only, you don't have to register. Got it. There are 18 that say you have to register no matter what. There are, there are the majority of them who go the, the exemption from registration route say, if you make your offering only to qualified clients. Got it. Then now, you do not have to register. Now, who and what is a qualified client? That, so then, so, okay, so let, let me, let me, let me, let me back up. But if I, and we're working together, right? You mentioned forming a Delaware corporation and then registering that Delaware corporation. Delaware LLC. A Delaware LLC, sorry. 
registering at Delaware LLC in as a foreign entity or a foreign uh, company right. in the state of where, say, that particular entity is, say, I'm in North Carolina. So it would be registered, say, as a foreign uh, company or entity in North Carolina. Do we still fall under the exemptions of North Carolina when the company is registered in Delaware? Securities law goes to where the investor is. Yeah. They could care less where you're registered. So the most common exemption under area five of the, of the, the fifth biggest area of law that affects funds is the qualified client exemption. Okay. Who is a qualified client? They have to have $2.1 million in investments or available to invest. So as you can see, every qualified client is automatically an accredited investor. Yeah. But as you can also see, not every accredited investor is a qualified client. So my, for my funds, what I tell my clients to do is limit it to qualified clients only 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 so that means that everybody there has a two million dollars or more to not well in total investments i mean they may oh. be able to write you a check for twenty five thousand dollars that's fine as long as they have two million seventy five thousand dollars in other investments or liquid cash available to invest or they could sell a property that would get would get them there an investment so property that would get them there so this is a this is a very interesting set of hurdles. Funds are a different. You know, you can see. You know, most people go the single purpose entity to, to get get their toes wet because it's easier. It only involves two areas. Funds are for the experienced. Got it. So then, what? Because I see. I know some people are doing. Um, they call it a fund of funds. You can do that, but it better be for qualified. It better be for qualified clients only. Interesting. The beauty okay. of qualified clients is you can go in 32 states and you're saying, well, all right, I can't get investors from 18. Those 18 states, though, I think you could take the number of qualified clients in the total of those 18 states. I'm not sure it would add up to more than maybe 100 or 200 people. Got it. There are exemptions available for the fifth area state investment advisor law. Exemptions available from having to use an investment advisor in 32 states, which is everywhere you want to be. California, New York, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, Virginia, wow. North Carolina. Wow. In contrast, the 18 states include places like Alabama, West Virginia, South Carolina, <laughs> places you wouldn't be raising money from anyhow anyway generally um you're, you're very knowledgeable my head is swimming but you mentioned that there were three ways uh one is the single purpose uh entity the second is the fund and the third is those are the most two common i'm seeing the, the single purpose entity and the fund okay got it so it's probably if you're if you're a newbie, single purpose entity is what you would advise. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, get your feet wet because it'll give you a track record. Got now, it. Forget about the area of law. What people are looking for in a managing member, or I used to call them the general partner and for LLCs came wrong, is a track record. What do you have? And let me tell you, if you're going the fund route, one of the things you have to disclose is your successes, your property held and your success. It's not. 
the private placement memorandum for a fund is, diff is very different from the private placement memorandum from a single purpose entity. Got it. The fund you're disclosing investment targets. I want 95% leased up. Uh, I do not want pre-1978 because I don't want to hear about lead-based paint and asbestos. I want properties where the roof has been done in the last five years. I want properties where the boiler has been done in the last 10 years. Okay. I want properties that have flooring that's been installed in the last five years or carpeting over the last three. You, in the fund, you create parameters. In the single purpose entity, when you write a prospectus, you're disclosing what's the mortgage? What's the acquisition price? What's the interest rate? What's the term of the mortgage? What's the monthly payment on the mortgage? Do I have prepayment penalties? Am I going to try to cash the investors out in three or four years? Got it. What am I going to have to renovate and rehabilitate? When was the last time the boiler was done? When was the last time the roof was done? When was the last time the parking lot was done? So this that that that's a little bit more straightforward. Right. Yeah. That's you know what's the rental rate? What's the vacancy rate? Okay. And so basically the 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 SDA which. I still use, I mean, I'm using other tools, starting to use other tools, but the syndicated deal analyzer that's put out by Michael Blanc, uh, another uh, plug there, I don't get any money for doing that, um, has a lot of that information, if you will, if you fill it out completely. Yes. It's a lot easier to give to Steve and say, hey, here is my SDA. It has yes. all the data in it. Is that's, that makes it so easy to write the private place memory. When people come in the door and they sign the retainer agreement and they wire me money, if they come right in and say, these are the rents, these are the vacancies, this is the acquisition price, this is the seller, this is how long the seller had the property, this is the mortgage, these are my monthly payments, this is the interest rate, these are my prepayment penalties, you know, it's interest only, and then I got to pay a balloon in eight years. I may refi and cash the uh, investors out, I may not. Got it. If they come, you know, and I, oh, by the way, I know I have to put 50000 on the roof, you know, and all of the CapEx. Uh, right, and they come right in and say the average rental rate in the area is X. This apartment is X minus. But I know every time I get a vacancy, I can go in there and upgrade and get the average. That's that's exactly what I'm looking for. Excellent. So do you have an intake form when people get in contact yes. with Yes. Okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we'll we'll get to that in a couple of seconds of how you can get in contact with Steve. But I did have one one last question in terms of, you know, dealing with newbies who may not necessarily have a track record in multifamily, but may have a track record in other things. Um, would you suggest them to potentially find another operator who's been doing this for a while, or you know, to serve as the KP in a deal, and then you know be on the GP as a result of bringing them a deal? Well, what I would what I would do is take some of the courses and talk to people. I don't think you necessarily have to do that, but I think you have to know what you're looking for. Got it. If you've owned your own multifamily property, let's say it's smaller, 10, 15, 20 units, you kind of know what to look for and what not to look for. Got it. A property that has 100 units has 80 more tenants and obviously it's gonna have more repairs and more capital expenditures, but you know if it's a bad deal, you know if the vacancy rate's too high, 
you know if the unemployment rate is too high in the area, you know if it's too far from major employers. A good real estate person knows that instinctively and runs. Got it. If they so see any of those red lights. So then, doing a 10, 10 unit a building is a commercial, <clears throat> a commercial under under you know undertaking. Um, if they were to do say you know a four unit a building because it's a four unit building, you still can get an FHA loan, and maybe you can do what they call house hacking, live in one of the units, run out the other three. Would that serve as a good track record for then moving? Yes. Moving Anytime up? you have investment property. It serves as a track record. I have to disclose, I'm required by the SEC's industry guide for real estate offerings to disclose track records. And what, what that section looks for is what's the price you purchased the property at? What's the price you sold it at? What's the percentage of leverage? Got it. Now, if you start seeing bought one million, sold one five, leverage percentage of 65% or less, that looks good to an investor. Yeah, 65% that means you put in you put in some money. Um, right. Yeah, it would generally, you know, right now, uh, 70, 80% is generally what, uh, as a loan that's given to investors uh, is what's, what's out there. So if you're, if you're coming in with only a 65% loan, that means you've had to raise, you know, 35% right. plus. That's what I'm seeing a lot in the syndication deals. You're seeing that because they're doing the securities raise. Ah, got that's it. Really, that's where I, I see 65% like clockwork just about most of the time. Is, and then that makes their numbers work better? or just, It makes well, it work better because you don't have a high monthly interest payment because your mortgage amount is lower. There you go. Okay. So 65, that's, that's a good, that's a good little note right there. So 65% is good, but you're raising a heck of a lot of money, but that's not a bad thing because right now, as I understand, there's a lot of money on the sidelines that's looking to get mm -hmm. utilized so yeah. they can get, you can help people who need to get things utilized exactly. by, by having a lower, a lower monthly uh, or a lower uh, mortgage amount. Uh, where you're raising additional money. And then of course you're raising additional money above that for operating expenditures. And again, if that money is deployed in a in a multifamily, you know, enterprise, it again goes along to help some mm -hmm. people who are high net worth because then they can take deductions and potentially get uh, some some tax savings. Well, you have to what, what, be careful on the deductions because since 1986 oh. They can use it only to offset other passive income. Yeah, that without deduction, may they can't use it to offset active income. So it okay. might help to offset gains in the stock market. Got it. Depreciation Got it. can offset a gain in the stock market, but it can't offset your salary. Got it. Thank you so much for that clarification. I am not an attorney. I am not an accountant. <laughs> I am not a financial advisor. So again, in every single private placement memorandum I write, be it a, a single purpose entity or be it a fund, if it's in an LLC, there's a 25 page tax section. Wow. And that's one of the things we go over is what you can and cannot take the, you know, the, the use the deductions to offset. Okay, that makes even sense. what the depreciation rate is. That's even that's so. Then the bonus depreciation, which was I think implemented uh, in the tax uh, tax act that, that President Trump at the time 
um, signed into law, uh, I think uh, expires in 2023. Um, are you still seeing a lot of cost segregation studies that are utilizing bonus depreciation? Yes, I'm seeing a lot. Like I have, I have two disclosures. I have the, we're gonna to try to use the bonus depreciation, but if that doesn't work, we're gonna use MCARS. I'm, I'm sorry, and MCARS is? Modified commercial, modified, modified commercial uh, system, the modified commercial depreciation system. Got it, which is probably more of an accelerator. Over 27 years. Got it. Yeah, everybody tries to qualify as much as they can for the bonus. Got it. And generally in qualifying for the bonus, you're having to replace, uh, do a lot of capex, as I understand. Yes. And you get uh, you get credit for removing or the cost of removing certain things as well as replacing that. Mm -hmm. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So... So someone's probably asking, well, what do you mean, Jonathan? So if there is landscaping that needs to be done, right? And you have to do a demo of the landscaping of 10,000 and then replace that landscaping with 20,000 of additional work, you uh, could definitely qualify for the $10,000 of removal yes. plus the 20,000 of replacement. That's $30,000 right. in bonus depreciation. Yes. Am, I, am I correct in saying that? Yes. I'm not completely confident, but that's what, I, that's what I'm seeing. Okay. Uh, the big examples are the windows and doors. Got it. Because that's your demo out and that's a replacement right in, and that's clearly provable to the IRS. And that's definitely uh, a good thing for the property because it helps with uh, the efficiency of the home, right? Right. You know, the new, new boiler, new mm -hmm. pipes. Okay. So that's, that's a lot. So we've talked about a lot. And I, what I want to do in this, this, this final segment here is uh, I call it giving us the boot. So this is any additional information or something that you think would, uh, that you'd like to add, you know, advise us of that yes. will help spur us along to, uh, to our next phase, our next piece of growth and things that you may be seeing. If you're interested in the property, absolutely go visit it and do a walkthrough. And I mean, visit it with an engineer. Check out the boiler check out the roof, check out the walls, check out everything, because I've got to write a private place memory. I've got to disclose all that. If you've got a problem and it's not disclosed, that can become a securities fraud lawsuit. If you check out the property with a very good engineer and the engineer says, hey, you need this or that, but your numbers work so the deal is successful, all I have to do is disclose is that, hey, we're going to do this. Now we know, we know we need to do the roof in the next two years. We've set aside the money for it. So as I'm doing my due diligence with an engineer, I'm I'm doing that in the due diligence phase, or is there some something else that uh that you would recommend? I would before you sign the contract, I would run a, a quick walkthrough with an engineer, and then also in the due diligence phase, because hey, if it fails the due diligence, you're going to get your money back, and you're not going to be raising money from investors anyway. Got it. Now, I've heard that some people said in terms of getting your money back, it's a little bit more challenging, even though the property may have you know, failed, like there was a roof issue and you found that in due diligence, you didn't find it prior to signing a contract. Are you seeing challenges where owners are not allowing that uh, hard money, uh, the earnest money deposit to be returned? Well, I'm a securities attorney and a business attorney. I'm not a real estate attorney. I would certainly hope, though, a good commercial real estate attorney 
would like like we do on the business end we do a lot of mergers and acquisitions work you know that's about 15 20 percent of my practice we have a comprehensive due diligence section when you're acquiring the assets of a business or the stock of a business and if it fails due diligence for any reasonable reason you do get your money back got it on the business law end i don't see that problem now i would hope the real estate attorneys are following our lead and writing a good due diligence section and the, they call it the PSA agreement, purchase and sale agreement. Exactly. Your local real estate attorney, make damn sure, just let her or him know, I want a due diligence contingency. Got it, got it. And if it, fails, it. if it fails that contingency, I'm getting my money back. So, so when, just when make I, damn clear going in the door with them. This is, these are your expectations for what you want. Because I have to attach that purchase and sale agreement on back of all the documents I'm writing. There you go. So then who do you work with? Do you work with a, a series of... Uh, when, I, when, I worked, when I did some stuff with Michael Blank, we bought an apartment in Tennessee. He had a very good local real estate attorney. I, I'll do when a client comes into me and I'm writing the private placement. Usually they go to the real estate attorney first. And usually it's been worked out. Uh, when I see the PNS agreement, I don't see a due diligence. It's like, e we got a little problem here. You <laughs> got it. Got it. So find a local real estate attorney who's going to do your, your just PSA. Just do the purchase and sale and close the deal, period. Got it. Don't get them involved in structure because a lot of them don't have malpractice insurance to cover the securities area. So you have a securities attorney? Who's going to real put estate together attorney. Yep. and a real estate attorney. Got it. Got it. So it's two and separate. Don't have the real estate attorney ever providing advice on the business side because they usually mangle it up. It's not their thing. <laughs> that's they'll tell you it is. It isn't. That's good. That's very, they'll, very good. They'll tell you a lot of the local real estate attorneys in Maryland where I'm from say, oh, I just form a Maryland LLC. Well, let me tell you, there's a section of the Maryland Limited Liability Company Act 4A607C that lets any creditor of any kind foreclose on your membership units at any time if they think they can't get paid. Wow. So if you're the GP and you're going through a Maryland LLC and you're an investor, the new GP on your deal could be Fed, could be Amex or Visa or MasterCard, and they just want to sell the damn place and get paid. Wow. So then that's the another Proper reason why structure. Real estate that. attorneys approach it of, oh, you do a local LLC, the bank understands that, and we can get the documents to the bank quicker. Yeah. But you could or you could have a bunch of investors in there who you thought were Sally, Tom, Dick, and Harry, and now they're Amex Visa MasterCard, and one of them's a doctor, and they're uh creditor and the plaintiff's attorney in a malpractice suit is now a creditor. Is that the reason why you file or for a single purpose? That's why, that's why I go in Delaware because Delaware only allows charging orders. It does not allow foreclosure of membership units to general creditors. See, the only this... Delaware LLC is Amex can write, write a nice letter saying, please send Sally's distributions to us. Okay. Okay. You get but they're not going to foreclose on the on the deal. That's that's no problem. Yeah, but, the, but they're not going to foreclose on Sally's units and then turn around and look at Visa, who's foreclosed on Harry's units, and try to start pressuring you. Got it. Whew. 
man, this is a lot. This has been eye-opening. There's some things that I did not know. There's a lot of things that I did not know as, as I'm hearing you and you're giving us clarity. You're you're helping us exactly. to find our teams and know what the right right uh, right people that we need to have on our team. How do people get in contact with you, Steve? How, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, my phone number two four zero four eight one two seven zero six, and my email s t e v e n d r i n a l d i at msn .com. Excellent. Are you on any socials or anything? I'm uh, I'm all over LinkedIn. I've done other real estate syndication podcasts. Uh, if you're a member of BNI, you can see my profile in, in BNI. I'm a BNI member. I'm also active in M3 Linked, so you can see my profile there as well. Excellent. Excellent. So I definitely will make sure that we are connected on, and I think we are on LinkedIn, but you're definitely in my database. <laughs> <laughs> and have been for a while. And I want to say thank you again for, for sharing your wealth of knowledge uh, with us. You've, you've uncovered some things. We've talked to some other attorneys and they've given us a wealth of knowledge. Um, but, you know, no one, one person has, knows it all. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we're grateful again for having you in our you space. Need and in our a sphere. team to do a syndication. You need a local real estate attorney for the purchase and sales agreement. You need a corporate securities attorney for the structuring of the operating agreement the private place memorandum, the subscription agreement, and the if it's a fund, the fund setup. Uh, you, need a, you need a darn good accountant because you've got to at least attach unaudited financials now on the, on the back of the private placement memorandum. You need a good lender. And you need, you need a good engineer to help you check out that property. You need a team. So, and I, and and again, you may not be able to to answer this question because I know it's outside of your your area. And I, I <laughs> but what about an accountant? How how would you go about finding finding a good accountant or or they no have SEC experience or not necessarily public, but they've at least done financial statements for private offerings. Okay, and I have a very good one. just outside of Annapolis, the rate is very reasonable. So uh, we'll be talking after this. <laughs> we'll want to have a conversation with her or him um, and bring them on the podcast and definitely, you know, highlight their business um, and get to know a little bit more about how to, um, you know, how to proceed in as, as we build out this team. And so, again, I've already said thank you. I don't know how many more times because, again, this thank is invaluable you. information, man. And um, I'm glad that uh, you're, you, you've you come to Red Boot and uh, the Strategic Multifamily Investing Podcast to share it. Great. If there's anything we can ever do for you in the future, please let us know, okay? Thank you very much for having me, Jonathan. Have a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Uh, a great weekend with your family and friends. Absolutely. Happy 4th to everyone.